Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is managing editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Well, as we promised last week, the podcast is pivoting away from new releases because there aren't any due to coronavirus. (laughs) And we're going to be talking about older films that are currently streaming on major streaming services like Netflix and Amazon and Hulu. And so we decided, okay, so what what are our listeners going to want to, you know, hear about what's something they're familiar with? How can we ease y'all into this new phase? And we're like, it's fucking Batman. (laughs) Let's talk about Batman. (laughs) So Batman Begins and The Dark Knight are currently available on Netflix and they will be until the end of March. So we decided let's rewatch those films and let's talk about them. So the way the show is structured, uh, we'll lead off talking about Batman Begins and we'll uh, then move into a discussion of The Dark Knight and then we'll finish up with Recently Watched. But to kick things off with Batman Begins, first we got to do a a bit of history um, because basically where the Batman franchise was in... 05 or 04 when they greenlit this and, and started putting it into production is was in a bad place because in 98 was Batman and Robin and it was just a disaster. It was reviled critically. It didn't, it kind of underperformed commercially and just Batman was not in a good place. As for the superhero genre, it had started to become revitalized with films like X-Men in 2000, uh, Spider-Man in 2002, But it was still sort of unclear what direction the superhero genre was going to go. Like you had X-Men, which was kind of comic booky, but then uh, they sort of erred on the side of realism in terms of giving them uniforms instead of, you know, the bright yellow spandex. Whereas Spider-Man and Auschwitz and Auschwitz. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That little nugget. Um, And then, uh, you know, but Spider-Man is very much like a four color uh, very bright, very colorful, um, unabashedly comic book movie yeah. uh, from Sam Raimi with his own little touches thrown in there. And so, you know... And when, I think, was it shortly after Spider-Man that Ang Lee's Hulk came out? Or was it before? It was Ang Lee's after, Hulk came out in 03. Okay, so it was the next year. So this was, you had like famous filmmakers trying to figure out like how do I translate a comic book to a movie and I kind of like Ang Lee's Hulk. Like, it's fucking crazy. But, like, he's very much trying to visualize, like, put you in, like, flipping through the pages of a comic book. Um, and also Nick Nolte is insane. So yeah, that movie's weird. It's a weird movie. I don't think it entirely works. But, you know, I... They I, have Hulk dogs. They have Hulk dogs. It doesn't <laughs> entirely work, but, eh. Um... And then it's, so it's, it's filmmakers and studios trying to figure out like what is the boundary here because like I think Batman and Robin kind of broke everything. <laughs> yeah, Batman and Robin was just it was too much in a lot yeah. of ways, and it just for what had seemed like a reliable IP, it it was the the audience had had enough. But Batman still remained valuable. But we weren't at a time where it's like Batman was everything and superhero comics are, or superhero movies are everything. We're not there yet. We're kind of getting there. And then you have Christopher Nolan, who has started to break out with films like Memento. And uh, he kind of proved that he could do a studio film by remaking Insomnia. Um, Which was apparently like very conscious. I think he was very like open about the fact that like he didn't make insomnia out of a passion for the original material. He made it as a proof of concept to show a studio that he could handle movie stars and a big budget. 
to right. like get the green light to make even bigger movies. Exactly. Like, like Christopher Nolan is a very career conscious guy. Like, yeah. you know, it's the, the, one of the weird things about Christopher Nolan is like for as such as, as big as he is as like a, as a filmmaker. Right. And as you know, he's one of like the few filmmakers that can get like a major project greenlit just based on his name. And as successful as he's been, he's still kind of enigmatic in, ter- in yeah. terms of like, like he doesn't do a lot of like, let me sit down and tell you about all my influences or let me, you know, hobnob with my fellow directors. Like he's not, he's kind of like a private person in a weird mm-hmm. way. Like he's just kind of removed and like, obviously he's very passionate about film and very passionate about um, you know, large screen format and like pushing IMAX and, you know, the experience of the cinema. Like I don't doubt his love of cinema, but he's also kind of like a locked box. Like when I say like David Fincher, you're like, Oh, the guy who does a billion takes, but Christopher Nolan, you kind of have to start reading into his films to sort of see the things that he's interested in. So on some, some of the things you can joke about, like, wow, a lot of his movies have dead wives. That's a weird thing. I was going to say, he's really interested in dead wives. He has a lot of dead wives, but also like a lot of his movies deal with the concept of time. He's very fascinated with how time functions. Um, And I think you're going to see that again in Tenet, but like you can see it already in Memento and Inception and even The Prestige, the way it jumps around in time. Like he is very interested with how time functions as a, as an idea. I mean, interstellar, a whole thing of interstellar is how time passes. Um, so I think it's interesting. The themes he kind of returns to that's all to say in 2000, you know, five, he was not necessarily like the most obvious choice to direct a Batman film. It wasn't like, Oh, you've done these huge blockbusters before. Clearly you're our guy for Batman, but Warner brothers, uh, which had a lot of, you know, they had worked with him before on Insomnia. They wanted to be in the Christopher Nolan business. Batman was kind of in the wilderness as a character. And they're like, okay, what's your pitch for Batman? And he kind of drew, he was he was loosely inspired by Frank Miller's comic, Batman Year One. And basically saying, I want to do a gritty origin story for Batman. Which is, you know, when you look at it, it's kind of interesting. We never really got that origin story in the previous Batman films. Like, it's kind of like, oh, he's hinted at, but there's no movie that's like, and here's him working to become Batman. Whereas Christopher Nolan's like, I want to take a granular approach about like, why is his costume the way that it is? How does he get his car? Where do these things come from? I want to make it realistic. And that kind of upends the expectations of these mythic characters that have always just, you go in and you just accept that this character is who they say they are. So if a guy, if Batman shows up in his Batmobile, you're not like, how did you build a Batmobile? Like no one's like, where the fuck does that even come from? You just accept it. And he's like, no, no, no. Let's explain how he got the Batmobile and see if that draws people in further. And that's kind of like the guiding ethos of Batman Begins, which is like, where does all, where does all this stuff come from to make Batman? Yeah, like if this were real life, what would actually happen? As opposed to like Tim Burton's take was more gothic, um, a little more stylized, and then obviously Joel Schumacher's take was, you know, deeply horny. (laughs) Deeply (laughs) horny. Uh, Those movies are very horny, but also just kind of silly and fun and goofy. Um, And so, like, you know, credit where credit's due. Nolan sat down and did the work, and I think that. 
I mean, we'll talk about it eventually on this podcast, the um, or on this episode, the influence that Batman Begins had on, had on other films. But it it was kind of a new thing, and it picked up a little from Sam Raimi's Spider Man, I would say, because that movie, because obviously Brian Singer's X Men, you didn't get much of an origin story. Like obviously Wolverine is kind of your point of view through that um, whole thing, but you don't really see him like gaining his powers. Yeah, it's, it's kind of it's more of just an ensemble movie that quickly explains who the X Men are and who they're bad and who the antagonists are. Yeah. And then Sam Raimi's Spider-Man is very much an origin story, but it doesn't get too in the weeds about like, well, how, you know, it has the organic web shooters, which are a holdover from James Cameron's uh, draft that he was doing for Spider-Man. But it doesn't get super duper in the weeds of like how exactly everything works. It's like he's bit by a spider and he has these powers. But the fun of it is watching him learn how to use the powers. And I think that Nolan took a bit of that. Um, cause I remember when I first saw Batman Begins, one of the things that came away from that was really striking was just how funny the movie is like not, it doesn't have a ton of jokes in it, but it is a, um, it has, it has, it of, has rye British humor. Yes. Yeah. Like Alfred saying, uh, you can take the roles if you like, uh, just bring it back with a full tank of gas when, you know, he's talking about how he had to have Bruce, uh, legally declared dead and everything went to, into Alfred's name. Um, like that's funny. And then watching him, um, you know, bond with Lucius Fox as he's kind of slyly Lu- trying to Lucius? get Lucius. What's his name? It's Lucius. Lucius. <laughs> Lucius. Lucius. No, Lucius. Lucius Fox, uh, trying to get all of his supplies and spy shit. Um, like those sequences are fun. Like there's a lot of fun to be had, which is not necessarily true of the other two Batman movies. Less, less fun movies. Less fun movies. Less actually, fun. I would say that I would actually say the dark Knight is a lot of fun. It's just very grim in its own way. Um, but yeah, I, uh, yeah. Batman begins just, it's very, if you look up to that point, no film, no superhero film is like Batman begins. It's very bold and very different. Um, and it was a big swing uh, for the character, for this IP. But I think it was also the only kind of film that could be made at that time. Like, if if Batman, if a new Batman film comes out five years later or five years earlier, it looks completely different than Batman Begins. It's either it does it either doesn't dive into what makes Batman Batman in terms of like how he actually comes into the world, or it's more lighthearted. It's not quite as, um, basically what you see with Christopher Nolan's doing, he's like, I want to make a crime thriller. Uh, Christopher Nolan is not interested in superheroes <laughs> at all. Yeah. He is not interested in that world. And I think if, if this movie comes out post Iron Man, you know, then it would have to sort of have that influence of, okay, well you need more comic book stuff here. You know, can we have Robin in here? Can we tease Robin? in this movie, you know, something like that. Whereas Batman begins just now gets to be like, it's a crime thriller. It happens to star Batman. And I'm going to make the case that Batman is not a vigilante. He's more than a vigilante, but his world is grounded in a, a guy that has all these tools at his disposal to fight crime. Like he's trying to sort of Christopher Nolan and, and co-writer David S. Goyer are trying to kind of thread the needle of how realistic can we make this character? Because there were other writers who found a way to make it way more realistic. <laughs> um, and I'm talking about Darren Aronofsky, who did a, did a script of Batman Year One 
and Batman's just a crazy guy who like lives in a, like a junkyard and like his like his like friend he has like a, he has a friend who's a mechanic named Al and like he goes out in hockey pads and like beats people like it's it's very very <laughs> sounds gra- like James Gunn super it p- pretty much is it is it's like if Batman really existed he would be a mentally insane person who yeah. like he would not be rich he would not be stylish. He would be this traumatized, damaged person who beats the shit out of other people. And like that for Warner Brothers was too far. That was that was a little <laughs> too far for something that's also supposed to sell action figures and things like that. So I think Christopher Nolan did pretty well within the studio framework he was given. Well, that's part of what I like about Batman Begins is that it does uh, like it gives Bruce a reason to become Batman. Um, that's not... I like that the movie doesn't make Joe Chill into be into being uh, like the Joker or someone of like great importance. Like it's a guy who killed his parents. And so his issue isn't with Joe Chill necessarily. His issue as he, you know, goes on his journey of self-discovery is with crime and with the city and with what drives people to do things like this and what can he do to make a difference. Um, and then, you know, thinking, you know, after his, mentorship with uh ducard um you know coming to i think that was just a really smart way of doing this where you have this this structure where you're watching his origin story with ducard and it, and it shows him how to use a symbol and how a symbol can can um you know, kind of further a cause that he's hoping to do. I don't know. All of that I, I felt was just a really smart way of doing things beyond just being like, yeah, he puts on a bat suit. Why? I don't know. He's scared of bats, I guess. Well, and I think to, to add on to that, I think one of the best things this movie does is it makes fear an integral part of the yeah. Batman mythos, because which is all it always has been like in the comics. He says he dresses up like a bat to scare criminals, that criminals are a cowardly and superstitious lot. And so, the, the the idea of rooting fear, not just in the reason that bat, like he dresses up as a bat to scare people, but because bats scare him and like owning that fear and making it part of not just his identity, but also his origin. That the reason that his parents were shot was because he was scared of the play. And so they left early. And so he bears the guilt that his fear caused. And so weaving that in, and then of course bringing in Scarecrow who further, you know, wants to unleash a fear toxin on the world. Like, I think that creates a nice consist, a nice thematic consistency throughout the film. Yeah. Yeah. Scarecrow is a great choice of villain. Um, I think something Nolan does really well in these first two Batman movies is, is make the villains tie thematically in with what he's trying to do. Um, and no one's pretty good about theme overall uh, within within his filmography of of kind of drilling into like his movies are about something. They're not always super clear or super effective, but Dark Knight Rises. Is, <laughs> yeah, but he is very much trying to tell a story larger than the story that yes. you're you're seeing on on screen. And I I think that that's something that's. Uh, in short supply in, in a lot of blockbusters. And I think that's something that um, I'm really happy to, uh, I think that's something that makes these movies special. Um, and, and so like choosing Scarecrow as a villain, not just because he looks cool, um, which I think, I don't know, we'll get to Dark Knight Rises, but I, I have some things to say about Bane. Um, but because he ties thematically into this notion of fear, and if fear is the origin story of Batman, the villain is fear, and his final confrontation has to be with um, overcoming his own fear. 
Right. Yeah. I think there has, I think it, I I do think Batman begins gets a little muddled in the third act. I think it has some third act issues, Mm -hmm. um, that sort of lose the thread of the fear a bit. Um, and also the way that he sort of dispatches with Ra's al Ghul. I have an editorial coming later this week because it's been 15 years and I'm still not over it. I'm still not over how that happens. Um, it's just, I'm annoyed by it. So I wrote about it. Um, but I do think on the whole, the film works pretty well in what it's trying to do. And I agree that, that Nolan usually has his eyes set to larger themes, um, and is doing what we would, what we like blockbuster filmmakers to do, which is to use this sort of populist entertainment to smuggle in ideas that, you know, will hopefully make the audience, you know, enrich the film basically. Yeah. Um, And so I think, and I think Batman Begins does that successfully. Well, and something else that really struck, uh, two things that really um, struck out at me on, on this recent rewatch. Number one is the use of miniatures and bigatures. Um, So Nolan obviously is a big fan of practical effects, but, I just found them so effective in the set pieces, especially when you get to that third act um, in, what is it, the Narrows? The Narrows. Which, the Narrows yeah. and the whole subway thing, like those are miniatures that they shot. And so that's why they feel tangible. It's not just a big CG composite of, you know, a potential city that's just kind of clouded in, you know, CG dust or whatever. Um, and I think that 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 lends a, a really nice like tactile quality to the film that, again, is not just for the sake of like, oh, I just want everything to feel, look and feel as real as possible because I don't like CG. But it's in keeping with the idea that this Batman is a more grounded, more realistic Batman. So why not also make sure that as mud, as many effects as possible are practical? Um, but then also just the scale of the movie feels relatively small compared to the dark Knight and the dark Knight rises, which is kind of nice. Like, well, it, it feels small, but I also feel it feels more crafted. Like when I, when I watch the dark Knight, I'm like, Oh, this is Chicago. And then when I watch the dark Knight rises, like, Oh, this is, this is, uh, um, Pittsburgh. Like, I'm like, Oh, this is a city. Like I recognize what city you, you filmed this in because mm-hmm. it's just the idea of city. Whereas, you know, uh, Tim Burton's Batman movies and Joel Schumacher's Batman movies are very much about like, what is the character of Gotham? What does Gotham look and feel like? And I think Batman Begins is the closest that Nolan ever really gets to that. Like the narrows have kind of this orange blackish hue. Um, Like it feels, especially when you go into the narrows, it feels like you're in a specific place. Whereas I think for the sequels, he wanted to just make to in order. He just erred on the side of making it feel as realistic as possible to the point where the cities are just have this. There's not a lot of set decoration. I'll put it that way. Like it's it or, or filming them in a unique way. You're just like, Oh, this is, this is a city. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. I just felt, um, I don't know, you know, especially in relation to the dark Knight, which is kind of this citywide Epic. And then the dark Knight rises, which is a timeline Epic because it like takes, takes place across like months in time for no fucking reason. Um, I don't know. This, this felt kind of like a little quaint in, in hindsight, which was kind of nice. Like it is very much a um, city level Batman story. Yeah, no, it's not trying to save the world. No, no, no. He definitely has like a relationship with Gotham. And I think that Nolan does a good job of sort of saying like the character of Gotham is corrupt in a way beyond just like, Oh, in previous Batman movies, there are, you know, there are street level thugs and then there are Batman villains and that's all there is. And what Batman 
begins says is like, no, actually what there is, is there are street level thugs and they are a consequence of crime bosses who are allowed to run free because the bureaucracy is corrupt. So basically painting you a picture of like the reason that the city needs Batman is because the system itself is broken. Yeah, that's fair. Which again goes into Christopher Nolan wants to make a crime thriller, (laughs) which is fine. Like, again, like it's fine. Like I'm not of the opinion that's like, you know, Christopher Nolan needs to like comic books more. Like he clearly doesn't. And that's fine. Not everyone needs to like comic books. If you want good comic book stories about Batman, you've got about 80 years worth to choose from. So (laughs) you're not hurting for that uh, 80 or 90 at this point. Well, and I think that was the purpose of bringing David S. Goyer on to co-write the screenplay because he could be kind of the the um, overseer of the comic stuff and make sure it was like mostly in line with um, that kind of thing. And whereas Nolan could, you know, have free reign to do whatever. Right. So it kind of I think it works for the most part. Again, the third act, I think once Rachel gets poisoned, it the film starts getting a little shaky. Yeah. Um. One of the thing, one of the trademarks of Christopher Nolan's Batman is he does not give a fuck about property damage. Uh, <laughs> he is content to just destroy whatever parts of the city he needs yeah. to to get the job done. And I will never find it not funny that like Rachel has been dosed with fear gas, and he's like Rachel. <laughs> like, <laughs> you have a guy dressed as a bat screaming at you, driving a hundred miles per hour. You need to calm down. <laughs> Yeah, this terrifying uh, bat figure in this odd car yelling at you as right. you're driving. And that's, again, like that to me is sort of – I, I th- one of the things I find fascinating about Batman Begins is how you have all this realistic stuff straining against like ninjas and like a tank and bat- whatever Christian Bale is doing with his voice, <laughs> whatever that is. They hadn't quite figured out, like, maybe we should just, like, digitize. Like, he has a special button that digitizes his voice, and then no one can tell what it is. Like, no, it's fine. He'll just talk in a deep, grumbly voice, and then no one will know. It's him. (laughs) It's just just fine. It's a choice. You know what's funny? It's, like, at the time, in 2005, like, it was a very, it was kind of one of the, like, one of the criticisms of the film. And now enough time has passed that people find it very charming. They find the Batman voice very oddly quaint and charming and kind of endearing that Christian Bale is like, I'm Batman. And like, then we're like, okay, that's fine. He just has a different voice. Yeah, it's fine. It's better than a fucking voice box. You don't like the voice box conceit. I'm, I'm not a a fan of the voice box. I, I don't, I like the voice box conceit. I think it's for a character that's like uses a lot of technology. It makes more sense than I'm going to change the octave of my voice. Sure. So fine. On that point, we disagree. <laughs> <laughs> on this, we disagree. Um, okay, so do you want to move on to talking about the Dark Knight then? Let's talk about the Dark Knight. All right. So the Dark Knight is obviously a more popular film than Batman Begins, uh, just in terms of critical reception and box office. Even though Batman Begins was no slouch, like it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't it didn't it obviously did well enough that they were like, make us another Batman movie. Um, yeah, it made like nearly $400 million worldwide, which again, you also had to remember that at this point in time, like the Batman franchise in everyone's mind was the Joel Schumacher Batman. So you, it was, uh, you had to like kind of sway public opinion to be like, no, we swear, like this is very different. Yeah. Um, and like get people on board with it. 
And not only that, you know, one of the things that, that kind of uses me, so he makes Batman Begins, and then instead of, like, turning around and being like, all right, into another Batman movie, he makes The Prestige, which yeah. is the Nolan film. Like, if you want, it is the it is the skeleton key to his entire filmography. If you yes. want to understand Christopher Nolan, like, I know in, early in the podcast, like, oh, he's so inscrutable. And again, he is. You have to watch The, the Prestige to understand everything about, you have to watch a movie to understand who Christopher Nolan is. Like yeah. you won't find it in like I'm gonna here's an interview where I tell you that one of my brothers is a murderer, <laughs> which is a true thing. That's a true thing. That's not me making shit up. That's <laughs> the third look it up. Brother the third Nolan brother is a murderer. <laughs> yes. I shouldn't laugh about it, but it's just it's so weird. It's like one Nolan brother created Batman, and the other one is making Westworld. The other one is in jail. It's just it's just random. It doesn't seem like a true thing, but it is. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. It's crazy. Um, But yeah, I agree. The Prestige is like his most personal film. Yes. Um, Although, and as others have noted, there also is a weird thing in Nolan movies where he needs a character who looks like him. That's another weird thing. Like Leonardo DiCaprio kind of looks like Christopher Nolan in Inception, which is also, I think, one of his more personal films because Inception is all about filmmaking. Um, Yeah. Anyway, The Dark Knight. So the Dark Knight comes out and it's this sort of, at the time, people were like, oh, this is the one that's going to change everything. And they, you know, when you look back at 2008, the film that changed everything was Iron Man. Now, let's pause here and point out, you know, I don't want to get to Dark Knight too quickly because we just were about to skip over something, Adam, that you wanted to talk about the impact of Batman Begins. Yeah. So you look at Batman Begins and... uh and, you know, I remember reading this in the trades, but then also, like, when I started covering movies professionally in 2010, um, which was about five years after Batman Begins came out, they were still describing projects as a reboot in the vein of Batman Begins. So it was this shorthand to say, we're going to reboot this property, but we're going to make it really gritty and grounded and realistic. Um, and it happened like everywhere to all kinds of franchises, like going all the way to like freaking Sherlock Holmes, Guy Ritchie, Sherlock Holmes is a gritty reboot in the vein of Batman Begins. Uh, you know, the Robin Hood movies, gritty reboot in the vein of Batman Begins, King Arthur, gritty reboot in the vein of Batman Begins. Um, I wish I should make a whole list of all the movies that were described as that. Um, but then also something that really struck me when I was watching Batman Begins was I was thinking about Iron Man, which came out in 2008, um, so three years later. Uh, and, you know, obviously Iron Man changed everything. Iron Man uh, kicked off the Marvel Cinematic Universe, kicked off, um, you know, this idea of, like, fun and colorful comic book movies, but they were also grounded. I think the, you know, the watchword for the Marvel Cinematic Universe is tech-based. Like, all the super powers and super um things are not necessarily like potions or formulas or animal bites they are based around tech um uh, you know even thor they describe it as like you know what you would call magic we call science um but the structure of batman begins is so similar to iron man i feel like we don't really talk enough about how iron man owes a lot to batman begins um you know that whole idea of opening kind of in media res and then going back 
to fill in the like so you know obviously batman begins um opens when he's like getting into fist fights abroad um in some kind of like unnamed nation and he's uh you know obviously like destitute and on his own and then it doubles back to show um you know his parents being murdered and him and rachel and when he left gotham city iron man does the same thing it opium opens with uh tony stark you know obviously the the convoy being attacked doubles back to show to introduce like here's who tony stark actually is um and i just thought that really fascinating i i, I think that's something that we don't really talk very much about no definitely it, it, it bears those markers and also again even though it's very tech-based. It's very much like, here's how these things work. So it's not like, mm-hmm. it's not just one day a guy in a suit of armor showed up and saved everything. Like, we don't we don't come into Iron Man's world and this is Iron Man. Like, and again, that may see now today when, when there are so many origin stories, that may seem odd. But like, think about the first, like, think about, you know, Richard Donner's Superman. That movie does not spend a lot of time on like, how did Superman learn to be Superman? Like there's a little bit of origin stuff, but for the most part, it's like Superman is off and running. Like it just, he's just like, there's a guy and he flies. And like, yeah, Superman is in the cultural consciousness a lot. And so you don't necessarily need that. But again, like apparently you do. Cause by the time Man of Steel comes around in 2013, you're like, no, you definitely need like a lot, like the first act entirely needs to be, who is Superman and like, who is Clark Kent and what does he believe? And like all these things. And so Iron Man is very much like, it's not just a guy in a suit. It's like, this is like, he's a really good inventor and he could invent things. Even if he was in the middle of a cave with a box of scraps and you know, like this is, you know what he's fighting for and this is what he's learning. And it's, it's all very sort of mapped out in a way to sort of be like, Obviously, we're not going to tell you how repulsor beams work because they're fucking fictional. But we are going to say he has a technology. They're called repulsor beams. They're built into his suit. They were part of weapons that he was building, and now they're part of his armor. Like, that's how it's all... Like, we're going to tie it all together. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Another movie that is a gritty reboot in the vein of Batman Begins is Man of Steel, which is Superman Begins. Which was a bad idea to have... I. You know, I know Man of Steel has its, has its fans, and I just think it was a bad idea to have Christopher Nolan and Zack Snyder as your people on Superman. Those are two guys that I would not say really understand who Superman is. And even if they did, I don't think that Superman tracks as a character that you can see as heroic. Like, yeah. I think Christopher Nolan is better suited to Batman than he is to Superman. And I think that, like, understanding that these are two different characters who need two different approaches should have occurred to someone at Warner brothers, but Warner <laughs> brothers is a very loyal studio. And like everything about them is like, if we like a filmmaker, we want to stay in business with that filmmaker, which is why every Christopher Nolan movie since insomnia has been made at Warner brothers. Yeah. Like you and I have both gotten calls from Warner brothers publicists correcting us on minor things about Christopher Nolan stories. Like we, yeah. I think like when we were calling Dunkirk a war film, they're like, no, 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 don't call it a war film. <laughs> yeah. It's a it's a World War II thriller. It's a World War II thriller. That was how specific they wanted it because yeah. they don't want to make Christopher Nolan unhappy. Warner Brothers paid. I think didn't Warner Brothers pay money to like be a part of Interstellar? Like he was going to make it at Paramount, yeah. and then they were like, "Oh no, we got to get in on this." <laughs> yeah, because his brother Jonathan wrote the script for Steven Spielberg, and it was a Paramount project. And when Christopher decided to direct it, uh, Warner Brothers was like, "Oh, we got to get in on this." Yeah, with our, with our boy Christopher Nolan. So yeah, Warner <laughs> Brothers loves Christopher Nolan. You will never love anything in this world as much as Warner Brothers loves Christopher Nolan. Um, and for good reason. He's made them a ton of Oh, them. yeah, he's made them. Yeah, it makes sense. I'm not saying like, oh, what are they doing? It makes total sense. But 
Yeah, they fucking love him. Uh, anyway, you can see the impact of Batman Begins. Um, yeah. But, you know, you go forward to 2008 and Dark Knight is a bigger film and you think, oh, well, Dark Knight will have the same kind of impact. And I think when people were trying to copy Dark Knight, they were like, oh, it's just darker and grittier and that's what we need to be. And that's how you get like a terrible film like The Amazing Spider-Man. Like it just needs yeah. to be Spider-Man, but dark and gritty and like no one fucking wants that from Spider-Man. Um, so like I, you can sort of see that impact, but like, obviously in 2008, the film that had the greater impact long term was was Iron Man. Um, but Dark Knight, as, as it stands as a film of 2008, is still amazing. It is just for a film that is very bleak and very cynical about humanity and very cynical about its heroes. Like it, I I find it a very entertaining and watchable film. Like I could watch the dark Knight just as easily as I could watch the Avengers. Like I think they both just go down very smooth. No, it's super watchable. Um, I would say, you know, even though Iron Man was more impactful in terms of creating the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I think The Dark Knight is also uh, culturally incredibly significant. Like, sure. we, we look back on it as, like, a shining example of what a uh, superhero movie could be. To me, it's the best superhero movie ever made. Mm. Um, and that was, uh, you know, I I felt even more strongly about it rewatching it this last time. And like you, like, you know, I put it on, I've seen it a lot of times. I was going to maybe fold some laundry while I was rewatching it uh, in preparation for this podcast, but I just got so wrapped up in it. I was watching the entire thing. I couldn't look away. Yeah. It's so masterfully constructed from the opening frames that beginning, you know, uh, Joker sequence shot in IMAX already tells you a lot about who he is as a character, just through the physical language of uh heath ledger as that character walking around um obviously you can't talk about the dark knight without talking about the joker it's it's one of the most iconic performances in cinematic history i mean it's just astounding what heath ledger was doing and i remember reading an interview with christian bale who said you know he was really excited to come back and he um, had all these ideas about what he was going to do and after his first day of working with Heath, I think it was in that interrogation scene, he was like, well, all that's out the window now. <laughs> like, this is obviously going to be his film. So, you know, he wasn't upset about it, but he was just kind of like, oh, I understand. This is, you know, there's no way I'm going to rise above this. See, and it's funny to me that you're like, oh, it's the best superhero film, because I don't really know if I even consider The Dark Knight like a superhero film. Like, I think it's a crime thriller that happens to have superheroes in it. Like, yeah. Cause, cause Batman is, Batman is pretty much a supporting character in his own movie. Yes. Um, the film, it's not that the film doesn't know what to do with him. Like he has relationships. He's woven into all of the stories. Like he has a reason to be in the movie, but it's not, it's clear that that's not really where Christopher Nolan's interest is. His interest is in sort of the triangle between Joker, Gordon and Dent. And sort of the idea of where, you know, if you take this chaotic force like Joker and you push him against this morally upright person like Harvey Dent or someone who is, you know, a good person like Jim Gordon, but not the, you know, white knight of, of Gotham, what, how does that change them? How does that affect them? How, how, how much can their, you know, morals be tested? And, you know, I think the film's conclusion is, is like the Joker breaks everyone in some way. And because he is, you know, pure, he is just this agent of chaos. He has no, in a world where everyone believes they have a moral code, Joker's belief is that they don't. 
and that ultimately if you just strip away comfort and if you if you terrorize people you will you will show them as you know craven and self-serving and monstrous and he's not wrong (laughs) (laughs) i i am i'm very much i'm very much that the joker is right that civilization is a thin film (laughs) um uh, has I, I think proven the Joker right, and I I um, would not want to see how that boat scenario plays out in the real world. See, and that's one of the fascinating aspects of the film. Like, I mean, that's that to me is sort of the really interesting things. There are certain elements of the film that you kind of have to sort of be like, is the Joker telling the truth or is he not? So, for instance, when the Joker is telling Harvey Dent, like, I'm just a dog chasing cars. I don't even have, you know, do I look like a guy with a plan? Yeah, you're obviously a guy with a plan. Yeah. You're all you. He's like, you were a schemer. You do nothing but schemes. Look at all the <laughs> schemes you did. Yeah. They were. They don't. None of this was random. You had to plan all of this. But he's. Te- I believe. I'm watching that scene today. I'm like, he's telling Harvey Dent something to tip him over the edge because even though Joker wants to create chaos, he is not a chaotic person, and I think yeah. that's an important distinction to make. But the boat scene is really fascinating because. First off, it's assuming that, you know, one boat wouldn't blow up the other boat um, and that they were like, we're all die together. You know, we'll let the Joker blow us up. Um, What's interesting in that is that how it affects later, how it comes back later in the film, which is Batman like tells Joker, it's like this city is full of people, you know, who are good. And then like Joker's like, unless their spirit breaks and I'm going to break it by showing Harvey Dent as a monster. And what's fascinating about all that is because Christopher Nolan is someone who clearly believes a lot in the power of symbolism. Mm -hmm. And so he doesn't think that he thinks what, what will hurt humanity is not, you know, action because the actions of humanity in the dark Knight are actually very uplifting that the innocent people and the criminals do not blow each other up. They choose to let they, they, they don't blow each other up even for their own survival. But for Christopher Nolan, what will destroy them is, the idea if they lose their idea of Harvey Dent and the film comes to the conclusion that the truth, like literally they say the, sometimes the truth isn't good enough. It's such a cynical and dark ending. Like it's basically Batman and Gordon being like, yeah, people can't be trusted. And like Joker's right. People can't be trusted. Like they agree with the villain that people can't like, like if the Joker, the Joker will win if they know Harvey Dent was bad. And I don't know if I necessarily buy that, but you know, at the end of the day, your heroic characters are like, we need to tell everyone a comforting lie. And that I do believe that people would very much like to have a comforting lie than confront hard truths. So it's a very <laughs> bleak and cynical film. And I love it. I love how bleak and cynical it is. It's so entertaining. I, I will say, while I do agree, I think Batman is relegated to somewhat of a supporting character. I actually like his arc a lot in this movie, which is... You know, Batman Begins, it's one thing to decide to take on this persona and to decide to fight crime. That's all well and good. Um, so realistically, what would happen next? Well, in the opening scenes of the film, you see Bruce shirtless and he's covered in bruises. Um, and Alfred is, you know, talking about, uh, you know, how it's taking a toll on him. And I think Bruce is starting to come to realize that he can't live forever this way and also especially can't have Rachel this way. And he sees in Harvey 
the possibility of like, hey, you know, I thought the only way to change this city was to go around and beat up thugs. And here's this DA who's not taking any shit. Here's a politician who might actually make a difference. And uh, that whole arc of him basically putting all his chips on Harvey and like, I'm going to let Harvey take over and everything will be great and I can stop doing this Batman thing. <laughs> and I'll get uh, to bang his girlfriend, which is a plus. Yeah, and I'll get my girlfriend back, uh, yeah. or the girl I love back. Uh, which, sidebar, Maggie Gyllenhaal is so much better in this role than Katie Holmes is. Well, that's because um, Maggie Gyllenhaal's a real actress, and Katie she's... Holmes is... Like, I'm sorry, like, no offense to Katie Holmes, but, like, Katie Holmes could not do the movies that... Or the shows that Maggie Gyllenhaal can. Like, Maggie Gyllenhaal is just a more talented actress. This, is, this isn't to be mean, this is just a fact. Yeah, and it made me... I mean, especially in the face of Batman Begins, where like there's not a ton of chemistry between Bruce and Rachel, and, like, she's... Like, Rachel is fine. She's just kind of that... Um, that kind of rote, uh, you know, female character, that character that sometimes get, gets written in a movies like this, um, which is a shame. But from Maggie Gyllenhaal's first scene in this movie, she's in command, and I, I just really love what she does with the character in this movie. Um, of really having her kind of take the lead... Um, but anyway, I like I like the idea that Bruce is like, here's my way out. So it's not he you know, in the second movie, it's not like, all right, I'm Batman and everything's great. And like, oh, no, my biggest problem now is that there's a villain that's too hard for me to beat. His biggest problem now is that he wants to have a life and he can't have it. And it makes the ending that much more crushing because not only, you know, uh, is Harvey Dent dead, but like the, he turned bad. Like this guy that he was going to trust entrust everything to. Um, was turned. Yeah. No. Again, like the film ends and the Joker wins, and like yes. they like they like Batman and Gordon say like the Joker can't win. We can't let him win. So I'll say that I kill. Like no, the Joker wins. Yeah. The Joker wins at the end, and that to me and and I I always feel like to me the biggest um, hurdle with that with the Dark Knight is that because Heath Ledger died before the film came out, it. I never, I, I've never been able to get a straight answer on this. Again, Christopher Nolan kind of keeps things locked up. Mm-hmm. I don't know for sure if, if how much Joker was supposed to factor into a third movie. I don't know if like if that's just a fan myth, like oh, there's gonna he was gonna come back and he was gonna like play a major role in the third film, and that's why they kept him alive. And like I don't know if that's true. I really don't. I've heard some people say that's true, and I've heard other people just like oh, that's a fan myth. Um, it seems like Joker was gonna have like the two characters are connected in such a way and the film bears such a strong relationship to like crime thrillers. Like, I don't know, Manhunter <laughs> where, you know, um, you know, your main, your hero visits Hannibal Lecter in jail. Like, it seems like that was going to be kind of their relationship. Like there just seems to be these kind of hints. Um, Oh, like they're like Joker won't be the main villain in the third movie, but he will be back because he informs Batman. And then that kind of all got thrown out the window when, when Heath Ledger died. Um, and then it leads you to Batman or the Dark Knight Rises, which is just kind of a film that doesn't really work. Yeah, it does. It definitely feels like their story is unfinished when you leave yes. that final scene with the Joker um, because they are. Uh, you know, it's the, um, uh, what does the Joker say when, uh, um, uh, an unrelenting something meets an immovable, an unrelenting force meets an immovable object. Um, this kind of push and pull between those two characters who, um, just can't quit one another. I think uh, you, yeah, I won't kill, you know, you won't kill me out of some misguided, 
for, you know, misguided moral code and I won't kill you because you're just too much fun. Um, I think you and I are destined to do this for a long, you know, for a long time. Yeah. It's just like, it's everything you want out of a Batman Joker relationship. And, you know, as impressive as Joaquin Phoenix's performance as Arthur Fleck is, um, because now apparently they're saying that he maybe isn't even the Joker at all, uh, which is dumb. Um, I just <laughs> the character in our movie Joker is not Joker. <laughs> yeah, they're like, well, who's to say he actually does become the Joker? Maybe he inspires the Joker. Come on, give me a break. <laughs> you just want to draw arrows to the title <laughs> yeah. of the film. Yeah. Uh, I just think Heath Ledger's performance in here is so iconic. Um, it's just, but it, everyone in this movie is so good. Like Aaron Eckhart, man, like talk about an actor who, I don't know if he got a bum rap or just made bad decisions, but he's I think he so made bad. De- well, I think he made bad decisions or no, you know what? I don't even think he made bad decisions as much as he, he is a good actor that ne- like he wasn't getting good. Like he needed a better agent. I'll put it that yeah. way. So yeah, maybe bad decisions is part of it or maybe what he was getting offered wasn't good because like, you know, Aaron Eckhart in like the two thousands was like on fire, like, you know, between this and thank you for smoking. And yeah, um, like he was, he was really on top of the world. And like, I, I, every now and then I like, I check him like, man, what is Aaron Eckhart up to? Because like, he's the goods, like he can act like he, yeah. you know, I just, yeah, he's, he's so tragic in this film. And like Gary Oldman is obviously terrific. And, um, you know, like, and it's funny, like, you know, Gordon, like, again, like this is pretty much Gordon's story. It's a story of Gordon uh, Dent and Joker and no other Batman film is really like, I don't know really what to do with this James. Like this Gordon character shows up and he talks to Batman and then he goes away like that. Like, and this is like, no, no, no. He is a central part of this narrative. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That final confrontation scene between Harvey Gordon and Batman, uh, the score, what Hans Zimmer and James Newton Howard do with the score there, I think is really impressive. Like that scene still, I can't remember how many times I've seen this movie, but that scene still choked me up. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I mean, just the filmmaking in this movie, like even what they do with Rachel's death, I think it's just so surprising. And you have the iconography and obviously bringing in 9-11 imagery. Um, which yeah, it's very much, I, I think what we haven't also mentioned that this is a film about the war on terror, yeah. which is just like, I mean, an, an obvious, I know that's an obvious thing, but like, I don't want people to like, are, do, they, do they not get that it's a war on terror film? Yeah, no, we got it. We picked that up. <laughs> yeah, I, it's about escalation and fighting an enemy that has, uh, you know, no rec- no discernible um right. i mean the scene where like batman is beating the shit out of joker and joker's like for all your strength you have nothing that i want <laughs> like yeah. that i mean that's that's basically like a terrorist talking to america you have the most strength in the world it doesn't matter it doesn't matter against a terrorist who just wants yeah, to like watch that, the world and burn it, and that Aaron interrogation scene is also just incredible um, oh, I love it. And I, I mean, again, the thing that makes, I think, part of the, like, I mean, we can talk all day about, like, how fucking good Heath Ledger's performance is, because it is. It's just amazing. I stop whatever I'm doing and I just watch it. <laughs> it's just <laughs> yeah. it's just so captivating. And, yeah. like, the choices he makes are just so original and different, but also grounded in the character. Like, I, there's no point, like, where I'm like, that's not the Joker. I mean, it's good. It's just not the Joker. Like, no, no, yeah. that's the Joker. It's just, it's a unique take on him. Um, like, it's amazing, but... Like, I mean, the thing is, is he says a lot of things that appeal to our darkest and cynical, you know, most cynical impulses. Like when he's like, you know, you'll see when the chips are down, these, you know, these people will eat each other. (laughs) (laughs) 
and he's right. Like that's the thing. Like, he's right. Like it, it's I'm, it's not a nice thing. Like none of these things are nice. But like he's like I'm not crazy. I'm just ahead of the curve. And he really like he. What makes him such an effective monster is that he's not just a crazy guy. You know, he is not in it for money. He is like he has a moral philosophy that is completely monstrous, but not unrecognizable yeah yeah it's it's unnerving um and you know obviously a large amount of credit also goes to jonathan nolan and christopher nolan for the screenplay i think yes. the screenplay is also uh just really impeccable yeah it's rock um, solid drawing from you know these epics like heat and this does feel like an epic movie i still feel like it's a little too long um like the like I know thematically it makes sense and it works, but the the boat sequence always feels a little extra to me just in terms of like the length of the film. But even given that, I still think it's a masterpiece. The scene that doesn't really work for me, because uh, I think the boat scene works. I think you need the boat scene to show that even if the even though even when humanity shows that they're worthy of you know that they're not monsters, we still don't trust people. We don't trust them. And we think they're frail and that they will crumble if they don't have a pleasant lie to hang their hats on. Yeah. The scene that I always feel is a bit heavy, but the film has to have it, is Batman getting Lao out of Hong Kong. It's yes. like it's like an action scene that's kind of neat, but like you have to have it's a because it's technically a Batman film. And yeah. without it, you really don't have much Batman in this movie. <laughs> that's true. Like that's what is there for Batman to do if you remove the Hong Kong sequence? Yeah, you have him driving around. Uh, so you have the the like chase sequence in the middle. Um, but yeah, you're right. He, I mean, he uh, goes after Eric Roberts. Yeah, that's, he drops Eric Roberts off a building. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's kind of it. So one thing I do want to call attention to is I do love the casting in these movies. Like, yeah, I mean, all, all the lead roles are great, but I like how like Nolan like fills in like these small roles with like Eric Roberts and like Rutger Hauer. And like, they're just like, oh, it's that guy. All right. Yeah. That's- I like that I like how you just said, kind of fill Linus Roaches in there. That being said, the extras in both of these movies are just not good. And I know that Nolan directs all of his second unit himself, so he I know he was there. But I always laugh when they're at that press conference and that guy's like, things are worse than ever. It's just really bad acting from a lot of the extras. And maybe that's why the boat scene bothers me so much. Like, yeah, all the unnamed characters aren't like – Given given a list performances, well, they're just like that. Giving convinced, like the distractingly bad performances. I think. All right, they've never really bothered me, but I I, I will meet you halfway on that. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. Um, Fine. But yeah, The Dark Knight is still you know a fantastic film. I, if you tune in, being like they better not fucking hate on The Dark Knight. We don't. <laughs> we didn't do it. We didn't, didn't do it. Sorry. I mean, if you want to hear us hate on our Dark Knight Rises. I've got some problems with Dark Knight Rises. I think it just doesn't work really at all. I don't know what the point of that movie is. Um, It seems very muddled. It seems like a film that's kind of loosely inspired by Occupy Wall Street, but not in a way that has the convictions of Dark Knight. Like the Dark Knight is like very clearly like a movie about escalation of the war on terror. And then like, but I don't know like if Nolan even really knows what he wants to say about, well, about income inequality. (laughs) And then everyone just gets stranded in Gotham. For three and months. For three, for three months. months. It doesn't make any sense. Well, we're about to have that happen in real life. We're I all about to be stranded in our <laughs> homes for three months. True. And uh, someone's going to make us walk out on an ice floe or something. 
<laughs> but no, it's just like, I mean, the thing is, is like Dark Knight, like it's consistent. You know, Batman really can't beat Joker. Like he can get him arrested or he can track him down. But every time, every time J- Batman moves against Joker, he has to sacrifice a bit of his, like his code is really tested. And nothing about Bane really tests who Batman is. Like the idea was clearly like, if you, they, they seem to think like, well, if Joker tests Batman psychologically, then Bane will test Batman physically. Problem is that physically, that's not a particularly interesting conflict. Physicality only takes you so far. And then that means the solution to why does Batman, why is Batman now able to defeat Bane? Apparently he just did more pushups. That was, that's how he defeats Bane. He just does some more pushups and then beats him up. Like it's, it's not very satisfying uh, in terms of the, the, um, the structure of the film, the main, the main conflict. The main conflict sucks. Cause what does Bane want? I don't know. Like to Could get not tell Batman? you why. And at the end it's revealed like, Oh, he's actually kind of a crony for Talia Al Ghul. She's the one who just wants revenge for her father, but you get like 10 minutes of that. And then the movie's over. And yeah, it's a like, weird reveal. It's a weird, unnecessary reveal. You should have just had like Talia Al Ghul is the bad guy. Yeah. Because, like, so, and I can already hear the counter argument, like, well, in Batman Begins, you know, Scarecrow is just a crony. Sure, but Batman Begins is, is number one, an origin story. And number two, Ra's al Ghul uh, bookends the movie. Like, we have had that foundation of him at the beginning of the film as Ducard. And even when he is Ducard, he's still doing things that, that Bruce Wayne disagrees with. And so that conflict um, and, and how it challenges Bruce makes sense. Um, whereas in Dark Knight Rises, it just feels like a twist for twist's sake. And it's just, and the structure is just really muddled and unclear and it's uncertain what's going on here. Um, and I get it. It's hard to follow up a movie like the Dark Knight. I mean, we didn't even talk about Wally Pfister's cinematography, which is absolutely stunning in the Dark Knight. Um, but I don't know. Dark Knight Rises. I will say Catwoman is very good. I like Anne Hathaway. Well, and again, that's the thing. Like you have these characters, like again, one of my main critiques, if I if I have a main critique of sort of these Christopher Nolan Batman movies, is that I don't think Christopher Nolan really is all that interested in Batman as a character. Um, yeah. I think he's interested in what Batman's world can say about bigger ideas. But, like, I think in terms of, like, how do I develop this character that I'm kind of saddled with, I'm not – he's not particularly interested in that. Like, I think there's more effort put into characters like Joker and Catwoman and, than there is into to Batman. Yeah. Which is, to me, again – I, I'm of the belief, like, even though The Dark Knight is, like, an amazing film, I'm not I'm not of the opinion of, like, well, why would anyone attempt to make a Batman movie after that? Because there's plenty of Batman stories you can tell beyond that. Like, I think there's plenty of room. Like, whatever Matt Reeves is doing, I think, like, okay, let's see it. Because I think there are stories still worth telling with this character. Well, and especially visually, I was thinking about this, too. I mean, Nolan's films are so grounded. Like, as you say, they're crime thrillers. They're not even really superhero movies. Um, but I still qualify them as such in terms of, like, a comic book adaptation. Um, Zack Snyder's take was, I don't know, something. Um, well, you know, I mean, I, let, let, let's talk about Zack Snyder's take briefly. Because as I was rewatching Batman Begins, I noticed, like, the, the murder of the Waynes is done very quickly. Like yeah. Christopher Nolan does not linger on it. Like he doesn't like he, I mean, it's brutal and it's, but it's quick. It doesn't, he doesn't make a, he doesn't sort of like, sort of, you know, really gush over it. Whereas like in Batman v Superman, <laughs> Zack Snyder's like slow motion, pearls falling, you know, just like it's, it's this epic thing. Everything yeah. is epic. 
Um, everything is awesome. <laughs> everything, well, everything does. It has to be awesome in scale. Everything has to be magnified. Like I, when I look at like a Zack Snyder film, I don't really see highs and lows. I just see orders of magnitude. Yeah. <laughs> like an earthquake. Um, so yeah, I mean, but yeah, for Zack Snyder, I think here, here's how Zack Snyder perceives Batman and Superman for that matter. He perceives it a lot like Watchmen, which is that superheroes exist to be deconstructed and, and analyzed. And I think that Christopher Nolan does not never at any point deconstructs Batman. He never questions the idea of Batman. And I think that's important because it means you're always buying into this character and you're always like, okay, yes, there is a guy who dresses up like a bat and fights crime. Now he explains a lot of it and he like, this is why the character is dressing up like a bat and here's why he has gadgets and here's why he's good at fighting crime. But he's never like, what does it mean to be Batman? Whereas Zack Snyder is very much like, you know, Batman is like, you know, so fed up with this life that his entire, you know, he is now this extremist uh, that can't even tolerate the idea of Superman. And so, the and again, to put Batman and Superman in conflict is its own thing. Um, but you see it with Superman, like, you know, what is, I have to, like, like Watchmen, I must deconstruct these superheroes to, you know, dig into them on a psychological level that questions the very nature of the superhero story. Um, and I don't think it works for... I think it works for Watchmen. I don't think it works for Batman and Superman. Yeah, no, and and Batman v Superman is already overstuffed enough without uh, you know attempting to bring this or this new Batman into the fold. Which I I do like Ben Affleck's take on Batman. This kind of I like Ben Affleck's take on it. I just feel like the prob the biggest problem with Batman v Superman is that it comes too soon. It's the sign. Yeah. I look at Batman v Superman and like while we can get into like why the film doesn't really work and all of that. At the end of the day, I think the, the biggest problem is that it feels rushed. Basically, one, like the, the writing on the wall is that Man of Steel underperformed. It didn't tank. It didn't flop. But it did not. It only made a billion dollars, which is what Warner Brothers wanted. They wanted to admit uh, their, Superman, their first Superman movie to make a billion dollars out the gate. And it didn't. And so they're like, okay, what do we need? What do we need to do? Okay, let's introduce Batman. Because Batman is money in the bank. We'll get a new Batman. We'll cast Ben Affleck, who is riding high off Argo. And that is what will get this next Superman movie to cross a billion dollars. And it still didn't cross a billion dollars. You know, because, and and I think you and I agree, what what movie was needed was not Batman v Superman. We needed another Superman movie. We needed a second Superman movie to really flesh out the character and really sort of highlight who he is so that when he does come into conflict with Batman, we're really torn on the stakes. Yeah. Yeah. There was no, uh, I don't know. There are a lot of problems with those movies, <laughs> but, but I agree with you. I think we needed a, another Superman movie to, to flesh out that world more and flesh out that character more. Um, in terms of Matt Reeves, Batman or Matt Reeves, the Batman, um, I was thinking watching Nolan's movies, like visually you kind of have, it would be interesting to see him go a little bit more stylish, uh, mm-hmm. not in not in a Zack Snyder way, but in more of like a Tim Burton way. I, agree. I think you can go a little more stylized with it now um, and have fun with it. And, you know, it seems like maybe possibly that's what he's doing. I mean, especially- I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> I, I, I really <laughs> don't. And I think that's exciting, but I don't know what he's doing. Yeah. I don't either. I, I do know, I mean, I just interviewed Michael Giacchino uh, for Collider. It's on YouTube right now, um, who's doing the score. And he talked about how the mentality they have is 
um, he, Michael Giacchino was saying like, he loves reading comics where Batman is in like the 1800s. He was like, that's really fun. And he likes the idea that each artist puts their own stamp on it. So he said, he's not the type of person that's like, you know, well, that's not what Batman would do. Um, cause he likes the idea of different authors having different takes on it. So it does sound like whatever they're doing is very much going to be their own thing and not trying to hew to like fan expectations or a reaction to Batman v Superman or anything like that. So. That sounds promising. Yeah. Um, I would also, just as a sidebar, I, I, or side note, I think it's very amusing that Michael Giacchino is now the, the composer for not just Batman, but also Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. Yes. <laughs> like, well, it used to be like, you have one superhero, and now it's, no, you have, can have many superheroes. I mean, it's kind of, uh, he, he kind of hinted that he may have been offered the Avengers and turned it down because um, he felt a little overwhelmed. He, he mentioned that he had been offered something by Marvel before, and he said, you look at something like the Avengers and, like, how do you create, you know, one theme, let alone five separate themes? Um, but it is interesting that Hans Zimmer ran into the same kind of deal when he came on for Batman v Superman, but uh, refused to do the music for Superman. He wanted Junkie XL to do the music for um or not I think you have the other way around. He yeah, had, he wanted the music for Batman. Yeah, he didn't want to try and do Batman again because he had already done three uh, Batman movies with Chris Nolan, and um, I don't think we needed him to come back for Batman v Superman. But uh, it is what it is. Although I like his Man of Steel score quite a bit. But yeah. I like his Man of Steel score too. But I also feel like sometimes in the composing game, there are, at this point, like for for blockbusters, there's like you can have Michael Giacchino or you can have Hod Zimmer. And I was like, yeah. aren't there other composers? No. Or maybe Alexandre Desplat if he uh, says yes. But he if he not. says yes, yeah. uh, maybe maybe after her Joker win, uh, Heather Gutenson. Yeah, Gutnadir, I think. Gutnadir like is yeah. She will. She maybe she'll be in demand. I hope can so. write some because <laughs> we're going to keep making superhero movies. So yeah. Anyway, um, so yeah, so anything else to add about The Dark Knight or Batman? Good movies. Good yeah. Movies. All right. Well, uh, hopefully, y'all enjoyed listening to this. Let's uh, let's swat, let's uh, flip over to recently watched um, before we get to what uh, next week's topic will be. Yes. Uh, so, what have you seen lately? So, I took advantage of the VOD release of Emma on Friday. Not The Hunt or The Invisible Man. Uh, I still want to see The Hunt. I have seen and liked The Invisible Man. We did a whole podcast on it. Um, but I watched Emma, and it was just the perfect choice to watch. Uh, Matt had already raved about this movie. Um, it's an adaptation of the Jane Austen novel of the same name, obviously. But it is just delightful and delicious and funny and witty and sweet and uh, sharp. Um it's, I mean, it, the best way to describe it for someone who has never read Emma is that it's clueless, because clueless is loosely based on Emma. Uh, Anya Taylor Joy plays Emma, um, who's this uh, kind of clever, rich girl who, um, you know, takes a, a less fortunate girl under her wing and tries to matchmake her and delights in matchmaking and also has kind of a love hate relationship with this friend. So like as we were watching it, my fiance uh, who loves Jane Austen has read the book, obviously um, she'd be like, who's that? And I'd be like, that's Paul Rudd. And he'd be like, and then that's Alicia Silverstone. <laughs> so I was pointing out all the clueless characters I was like, Oh, I know who that one is um, from the movie. But uh, I mean, the big, big headline from Emma is that director Autumn DeWilde is one to watch. Uh, visually, this thing is absolutely stunning. It has some of the most lush, uh, gorgeous cinematography and production design and costume design I've seen um, in a long time. It, I will be surprised if it doesn't get nominated for some of those Oscars. Um, or disappointed, more like. Um, 
but yeah, it is well worth your $20, especially if it's you and a pal or you and a, a significant other. Um, you know, that's a steal uh, as opposed to going out to the movies. And it's also just a really joyous movie. It'll put you in a good mood. So I highly recommend it. Yeah, the craftsmanship is is off the charts. Uh, Autumn Wilde's background was in music videos. Uh, this is her debut feature, and she just has total mastery of of what she's doing here. And I think it it really helps distinguish her Emma from previous iterations, uh, while still not feeling anachronistic. Um, I really liked it a lot. Yeah. Um, for me, uh, my my wife and I have picked back up watching ER. Uh, which may seem an odd choice to watch in these stressful times, but oddly, it's kind of comforting. Um, if you don't know, ER was an NBC drama series in the 90s and went until, it lasted like 15 seasons, um, so like up like to the late 2000s. Um, and basically, it's just, it's an ER in uh, an urban district in Chicago, um, this sort of struggling emergency room and following the doctors and um, on the surface, like, oh, okay, well, I know what a medical show looks like, but I think ER kind of stands apart because of how fast it is and how it really knows how to ratchet up the drama. And it's not really about, um, it's not like a Grey's Anatomy thing where it's like, who am I romancing this week? And like, I mean, and like, oh, we also do medicine on the side. Um, it's really more about like the doctors have personal relationships, but there's sort of a grounded aesthetic to it that really sort of makes you feel viscerally there. Uh, the way the camera moves and the way that, you know, the, you know, the tension can just explode. Whoever comes through that emergency room door. Um, and yet it's oddly comforting because these are just competent people trying to do their jobs. Um, like there's not like, you know, and they have their flaws, they're human beings, but ultimately it's about like good, you know, ER doctors trying to just save lives. And, you know, obviously they're pissed off when they have to save some drunk driver as opposed to saving, you know, an innocent child. But again, they're just, they're painted as sort of these human beings and um, it's really empathetic and uh, it's a good watch. It's all, it's all of it's on Hulu. You can watch ER on Hulu right now. <laughs> that show is also just so good for so long mm. it, they, it reminds you of like oh yeah like back in the 90s they were making 23 episodes a year uh and like nine ten seasons of this stuff although i know er went on much longer i, I think i tapped out right around when dr green left um but Season it holds eight. up yeah yeah it holds up incredibly well and that rotating ensemble is is fantastic and pound for pound that pilot is one of the best pilots i've ever seen yeah it's it's a pretty great show so, um, yeah, give, give ER a shot if you're looking for someone to watch right now. Um, okay, so we, we put a poll out uh, asking y'all, what do you want us to discuss next week? And the winner is Scott Pilgrim versus the World, which is currently on Netflix. So that's what we'll be discussing on next week's show. Um, and it should be interesting because I love the film and I love the books that it's based on. Adam is not a huge fan of Scott Pilgrim. So. <laughs> I don't hate it, but I, uh, it's my least favorite Edgar Wright film. So there you have it. <laughs> um, we will have much to discuss. We'll have much to discuss. So uh, if you want to be ready for next week's episode, uh, give Scott Pilgrim versus the world a watch. It is on Netflix. All right. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chipwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week. <laughs>